invite you, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. That's where we're going to be starting uh, as we continue the sermon series, walking through the book of Acts little by little, which we've been in for some time now. But again, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And we got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to be talking really fast this morning. And I hope that's okay, because there's a lot here for us. Um, if you need a Bible, there's some on the seat backs, uh, or under the seats in front of you. Or if you want to follow along, we're going to have the words on the screen as well. Now, if you're familiar with The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, then this image on the screen may stir up some memories for you. Uh, if you've seen the movie The Hobbit, again, you might be familiar with it. We see a young Bilbo Baggins here uh, who is a sleepy and a couchy little hobbit who doesn't like adventures and he likes to stay indoors. He's very much like uh, Pastor Matt here who doesn't want to ruffle too many feathers. He likes to stay inside, but he is summoned to embark on a grand adventure. This big quest that calls him away from his little homeland, and it involves dragons and treasure and far-off lands. And in this scene, he leaves the Shire, he leaves his home, uh, shouting something out loud. Do you remember the line? Does anybody remember what he's shouting here? There's a little meme that says it. I'm going on an adventure. Thank you. I'm going on an adventure. Which is not normal for him. And yet he steps out into the big, scary world ahead with a quest and an adventure. And thus his story begins. Anytime a pastor can quote the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, it's a good guy. Okay, so I just had to, had to work that in here. But the, the book of Acts, the reason I reference the book of Acts, following Jesus is... As you may have noticed, uh, similar in feel, that there's this adventure that we are called to as we follow Jesus. He, he calls us from where we have been and where we are safe and comfortable out into the big, wide world of His and into His mission and work. There's a great work that God is doing in the world, and He invites us to participate with Him in that work. Even though we perhaps would at times want to stay home or comfortable, we are saved by Jesus and then filled with His Spirit and then sent out on mission. Right? That's our service, Acts Church on Mission. The whole book of Acts is about how we are called to go and be about God's work in the world. Before our world was small and centered on us, but now it's about God and his big world out there. It goes from uh, watching TV in black and white to now seeing in color. There's people that need to hear the gospel. There's evil to confront in the world. And as we've already seen in the book of Acts, this, this mission, God's call in our lives, may take us to some unexpected places. And it might stir within us some unexpected Challenges or changes. And we've said before that we shouldn't expect everything in the book of Acts just to parallel our day to day. There are some things that are unique to the book of Acts, and yet there are certainly principles we learn about what does it mean to live on mission with God in His world. And so the text this morning is going to teach us about that. It's going to challenge us and help us wrap our head around the mission of God in the world and what it looks like. And we're going to learn three specific things, actually, about the mission of God in the world. We'll start here in chapter 8. We've seen 
notice the good news of Jesus being taken from Jerusalem and those first apostles, and it spreads out into the surrounding world. Right in chapter 8, we've seen the good news go to Samaria and how the Samaritans respond. Uh, they become part of the people of God. But this morning, we're going to continue to see how the gospel breaks new ground outside the walls of Jerusalem and outside the Jews, expanding out into the ancient world. We pick up the story right after the account of Philip and the Samaritans here in verse 26. Look at it with me again. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. We're going to walk through this whole encounter this morning, but I want to just first point out uh, the basics. There's some messenger, an angel from God. Uh, some will say this today, even as the Holy Spirit speaking to Philip, but somehow God gives Philip this message, uh, a, a divine prompting, I want you to go, take this road south. The road he was talking about was a desert road, it mentions, that ran southwest out of Jerusalem toward Gaza, toward the Mediterranean coast, and it's there that he encounters this man, an Ethiopian man. Ancient Ethiopia was also known as Nubia or Cush. It was uh, south of Egypt, if you were picturing a map, and it covered the areas of what is modern-day Ethiopia and Sudan. And it was considered to be the southern end of the world, kind of the border of civilization. It was a fairly powerful nation, and was primarily ruled by a queen, the queen of Ethiopia. They didn't call her queen, but again, Kandake, as we see in the text. It wasn't her specific name, but was a title. And so this man, Philip meets, we're told he's a eunuch, he's an important official in charge of the queen's treasury, and he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship God and was on his way home. We're going to see some interesting things about their encounter as we go, but what we noticed initially from the text, what I find just striking right away, is how the whole encounter begins. Right? God's sovereign hand guiding Philip. Right? Look again at verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. We don't know exactly how this message is received. And yet, Philip hears or senses from God this clear prompting. Hey, I have somewhere for you to go. He doesn't explain all the details of what the job is going to be, but I have a job for you to do, and so he goes. He listens to the prompting of God. And then once he gets there, he sees this man seated in his chariot. And again, some prompting from the Spirit of God. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip listens, and then he draws near, and he overhears what's going on there, and the rest of the story unfolds, this transformative encounter with this man from Ethiopia. We're going to return and talk more about that man, but again, the first thing we learn about the mission of God from this text is that the mission is spirit-led. But we see this implied throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit on the move, the Holy Spirit leading and guiding and empowering, and here again explicitly mentioned that Philip 
is led by the Spirit, prompted by the Spirit. Hey, go south. And then once he gets there, hey, go get close to that chariot. So as the people of God, we too are to be led and prompted and guided by the Spirit of God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice. They will follow him. And so as believers, we should be learning to hone the skill, the heart posture of listening to God's voice and being led by the Spirit. You know, this fall we did a, a series of classes, growth classes here at FBC. One of them was a parenting class. And uh, one of the chapters in the parenting book referenced a prayer that, that Andy and Sandra taught their kids. And I love this prayer. I found it so helpful. The prayer went simply like this. Dear God, please show me your will for my life. Simple prayer. Dear God, please show me your will for my life. And the authors of the book talk about how they taught that prayer to their children and prayed it with them regularly. Uh, since hearing about that, Amber and I, we've been teaching that prayer to Zoe and Shepard. It's simple and yet profound. And what is so helpful about it is that we're trying to teach our children that, hey, you need to learn to hear from God. To sense God's will for your life. Not just what your parents want. Not just what we want, although we hope they would listen to that as well, but ultimately we want you to be able to listen to God. You can have a personal relationship with the God of heaven, and we want you to start to hear his voice. And so teaching them to pray that simple prayer, God, show me your will for my life, is a way to get at that. And so if that's true for children, that's true for adults as well, right? We should be sensing, Lord, show me your will for my life. Help me sense your direction your will, your plans, what you would have me do or not do, help me discern your purposes for me. Now, admittedly, sometimes this is a challenge, right? Because most often the prompting of God for us isn't audible or like delivered in the mail and like printed letter or like, you know, the letters of alphabet soup don't arrange nicely into a message. For us, and so it can be a little bit challenging to sense, Lord, what are you saying to me? And there are times where we don't know, and He still calls us to, based on what we do know of who God is in His character, make decisions and not be paralyzed. I haven't gotten the alphabet soup message yet, so I'm not going to do anything. No, He calls us to live and make decisions, and yet we should be doing it with a posture of openness to His prompting. So if we want to be led by the Spirit, there are uh, two tools I think we should have in our tool belt to help us discern God's voice. And the first is simply the Word of God. We want to be familiar with God's Word and His voice and making decisions and discerning what God is saying to us. If what we are sensing and prompting doesn't line up with God's Word, then it's probably not of God. Right? God's not going to tell us to do something that's going to go against what He has said in His Word. So we can't justify some burning in our heart because it feels or seems right to us if it is a clear contradiction of Scripture. So as we're discerning the prompting of the Spirit, first of all, we need to know the Word of God and he's familiar with it. But the second tool that we need is the people of God. Right? We are to discern God's voice and direction and prompting in our lives in the context of community. That's why we have community groups at FBC. 
That's why we believe in doing life together, because we're not just supposed to be like isolated in a cave somewhere trying to hear God's voice. Because sometimes we'll come back with really squirrely ideas. God's given us the gift of community. And so, we should have this practice of talking with trusted people in our lives about decisions that we're making. Right? About the direction that we're heading. We can come to, to trusted people in our lives and say, hey, I, I think God is maybe leading us to consider relocating or moving away or, or putting our kids in, in public school or making a change and putting our kids in homeschool or uh, considering a job change or uh, making this major purchase that's going to really change financially what our life looks like or there's this new responsibility or opportunity that we should take on. Uh, how does that sound to you? I'm, I'm thinking this would be what God would have for me, but I don't know. What do you think? And not saying that we need community's permission, and yet there's wisdom in many counselors that people who know us and love us and who love the Lord to be able to speak into decisions that we're making. So as we're trying to be led by the Spirit, making decisions in the world, we need the Word of God and we need, of course, the people of God. It's interesting, too, here, because in Acts chapter 8 with Philip, this particular road that he's called to travel on going south towards Gaza, actually went by a region known as Old Gaza, and at the time there was a, basically a deserted city down that way, and they would, would pass by some ruins, and so it kind of would feel like the middle of nowhere or on the road to the middle of nowhere. And so this command, this prompting of the Spirit, Probably would have seemed odd to Philip. Maybe even absurd. A command. Yeah. Put yourself in his shoes. It's essentially a call from, from the front lines of ministry. In Samaria, things are, are booming. Things are happening. People are coming to know Jesus. There's all this hustle and bustle and activity. And now you're going to say, hey, leave all of that and go out to the boonies in the middle of nowhere. Like, leave Benicia and go to Ripon. <laughs> like, leave Benicia in the Bay Area and go to Modesto. <laughs> Apologies if you're from Modesto. <laughs> we love you, buddy. You know what I'm saying. Okay, there's all this kind of action activity in Samaria. You know, people are being saved and baptized, and the Holy Spirit falls in power upon the people, and the church is growing, and there's crowds gathering. And God says to Philip, leave that and go down to this obscure location because I have something for you to do. Often for us there's this draw to be where the action is at, but sometimes God has business for us elsewhere. And sometimes the voice of God might not make a whole lot of sense to us. That's why we need one another. At the conference we attended uh, as a staff and board this past October down in San Diego, there was one of the speakers, Chris Bell, he told this story of a, a hard season in ministry where he was just discouraged and ready to quit, and he, one Sunday morning, woke up early to get ready to go and preach and do his pastoral thing, and he just was, was done. And he just prayed to the Lord, Lord, I don't think I can do this anymore. It was early in the day, like 5 a.m. in the morning, and as he's praying, so I don't think I can do this, uh, he gets a call from a friend at 5 a.m. in the morning. And, and his friend tells him, hey, this might seem kind of random or weird, I just really got this sense that God wanted me to call you and reach out and let you know I'm praying for you, yeah. and that the Lord's hand is on you. 
Now, think about that. Nine times out of ten, a call at 5 a.m. in the morning is not welcome. Like, don't do that. Don't call me at 5 in the morning. And yet, it was prompted by the Lord. It's kind of out-of-the-box, abnormal moment. But it was of the Spirit. The Spirit said, hey, your friend needs encouragement. I'm going to put him on your mind and on your heart. I want you to reach out to him. And he did. It was the perfect answer to Chris's prayers. He was discouraging. It was just what he needed to hear. And so there are going to be times where God's going to, by His Spirit, prompt you. There's going to be someone who's going to be on your mind, a situation that you can't shake, uh, something that randomly comes into your head and your heart, and He wants you to be an encouragement, to minister to someone. It's an invitation to respond to the Spirit's leading. Now, let's look at a little more what happens with this divinely appointed encounter. Look at verse 30. It says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So now Philip's hanging out in the chariot with this man from Ethiopia. This is a passage of scripture that he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? So Philip runs up to the chariot by the prompting of the Spirit, and it wasn't like catching a speeding car or anything, and it was probably moving quick. He had to probably put some effort and part to do it. And he hears this man reading aloud the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And so just from that fact alone, we learn that this man, uh, this Ethiopian treasurer, servant of the queen, is powerful and wealthy. First of all, he's riding in a chariot pulled by horses and a driver, which was exceedingly rare in his day. Probably was with an entire entourage of people and servants. He also has his very own copy of the book on the scroll of Isaiah, which realized back then, like, not everyone had a copy of the Bible. They didn't, like, have it on their phones or carry it, you know, around, like, a printed version in their home or whatever. It was very rare. Um, they didn't have access to hundreds of Isaiah scrolls in the Bible at their fingertips. Um, synagogues, even, in cities rarely had uh, all of the scrolls. So they would often have to like share the scrolls between the synagogues. They'd often borrow them and exchange them because they were so expensive and hard to come by. Yeah, this guy has his own personal copy of the book of Isaiah. That's a big deal. It's powerful. He's, he's wealthy. Also, he's educated. Right? He can read. He's reading up. That would be rare. And actually, if you knew how to read in the ancient world, found this out, uh, most of your reading would be done out loud. Like, the majority of reading that if you were reading uh, something in the ancient world, you would read it out loud. It wasn't silently in your head. That's just an interesting fact. So he's reading it out loud. Philip runs up, hears this guy, and asks this great unassuming question, do you understand what you're reading? Hey, is, is this making sense to you? He says. Do you know what Isaiah is talking about? And the guy responds, well, no, how, how could I possibly understand this unless someone explains it to me? I don't really understand what's going on here. Please, and he invites him in to his chair. Please help me understand. 
So this Ethiopian official, he's searching for answers that he doesn't have. He might be rich, influential, educated, and yet there's still this searching going on. And he happens to be reading from Isaiah 53, which is this, this powerful prophetic text about the suffering servant, a savior who God would send to save the world. There would be one who would come and take away the sins of God's people, one who would willingly die in the place of sinners. And so again, notice God's hand in all of this. He's leading and sending Philip. Hey, listen to me. It's not going to make sense to you, but I want you to go down south to this road. i got something for you to do. And once he gets there, he sees this chariot. Hey, go run up along the chariot and see what's going on there. And then this man in the chariot is reading from the book of Isaiah. Of all the books he could be reading, he's reading Isaiah. And of all the chapters in Isaiah, he's reading Isaiah 53, which is one of the primary messianic prophecies that the early church looked to as pointing to Jesus. This is like one of the key passages from Old Testament scripture that the early church said, look, this is what's been telling us about Jesus all along. It's an incredible opportunity for Philip to interact with this man and tell him about Jesus. It would be like today if you walked into Starbucks or One House Bakery or wherever you're going to go after this for some food and someone is there like reading the Gospels aloud, looking puzzled. So clearly, would someone help me make sense of this? I mean, that kind of opportunity, you're like, well, I actually know what that passage is about. I'd love to talk to you. It just served up on a platter for Philip. And so, verse 35, the story goes, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Because actually, I know who that's talking about. And he tells him about Jesus, this Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world by substituting himself and dying for us. Then anyone who believes in him will be saved. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is given a new heart and a new life and a new future and a new identity as a child of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, God's going to welcome you into his family. He's a share the gospel. And it says that he began with this very passage. But I'm willing to bet he didn't just stay there in the book of Isaiah. There are several other times where Luke uses the phrase, he began to show them from the scriptures. And when that phrase comes up elsewhere, it usually refers to referencing various passages from the Old Testament, from the law or the prophets. This is the same phrase that's used when Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, after his death and resurrection, and the disciples don't quite know what happened, and they don't really know what's going on, they don't actually even know they're talking to Jesus, and it says that Jesus began to show them from the scriptures how all, uh, all of it was essentially pointing to him. It's the same word, or same phrase that's used here. Uh, same with Peter in Acts chapter 3, and Paul later in the book Acts chapter 26, where we see these speeches where people are saying, hey, here's how these Old Testament scriptures have it's all been pointing us Philip's explanation surely would have explained that salvation is received when we turn from our sin and we turn toward Jesus and place our faith in Him as our Savior. 
So the second lesson we learned about the mission of God, the great adventure of God that he's called us on, is that it's Jesus said it. The mission is Jesus said it. It's about the good news of Christ. The mission is to like Phil and help men and women hear the good news of Jesus. Here's what he's done. Here's his death on the cross. Here's his resurrection. Here's what it means for us, the new life that we now can have in him, being forgiven of our sins and restored to a right relationship with God who loves us. So notice, we have the Spirit of God combining with the Word of God pointing to the Son of God. I mean, that's the heart of mission. And so likewise, we as a people need to see Jesus as the hero of the story. That's a real true diagnostic question for individuals and for churches, is are we growing in our affections for Jesus? And do we leave church and are we seeing in our spiritual lives that Jesus is a really big deal? And we, we make much of him, and do I love Jesus more now than I did before? And am I noticing the work of Jesus in my life more now than I did before? And at this church, is Jesus lifted up and is my heart stirred up to think more of Jesus and lofty thoughts of who he is and what he's done? Because he's the center of the story. <laughs> so the mission is Jesus-centered. What people know about Jesus? His great love for you, for the world. And our job, like Philip, notice, like Philip, is to help people connect the dots. I mean, you might not be a seminary graduate, or might not have formal theological education, but we also be ready to, to point people to Jesus and help them connect the dots. Even if it's as simple as, as knowing John 3.16, or knowing the story of the prodigal son, how God welcomes us home, and he made a way for us to come home through Jesus, the Savior. Because there's going to be all kinds of encounters, like Philip had with this man, all kind of, kinds of divinely appointed encounters that, that God's going to invite you into. And the response, the opportunity when, when you're out there in the world is not necessarily be to like, call the pastor! Wait, wait, hold on, you want to hear about Jesus? Let me get Matt on the phone or my small leader on the phone. Wait, wait there, don't leave, don't leave, hold on. Uh, no, the opportunity is to be for you to talk about Jesus and talk about the difference he's made in your life. And talk about from the scriptures what, what he's done for us. So the mission is spirit-led, the mission is Jesus-centered. There's one more for us. I want you to notice how the man responds. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So this man hears the gospel, and then he believes, and he's baptized. This is an amazing conversion moment here in Acts chapter 8. We see right after this, Philip is, is, is carried away kind of supernaturally as the chapter closes, but I just want to talk a bit more about this man from Ethiopia so we understand the significance of what's going on here. We, we haven't talked a lot about him so far, other than he's wealthy, influential. He's, we're told a few times in the passage, actually repeated, uh, I think about five times, that he is a eunuch. Uh, they refer to someone who is castrated, or who had been somehow physically sexually altered, at least uh, to prevent procreation. Uh, but often, uh, it inhibited them any kind of normal sexual activity. And so when uh, 
queens or uh, those in power would hire people to bring them in to serve in the royal court. Sometimes this step was taken. This was the price of employment. If they were to be looking after wealth, the women or the queen, they didn't want any threats, and so they would take this step to make them eunuchs. So we learned that this man paid a high price to be in this position. A treasurer serving the queen. He's powerful. The secretary of the treasury, you can say. The CFO of all of Ethiopia, essentially. And it was a costly position. This eunuch had exchanged, think about this, he had exchanged his family line and the hope of descendants for power and influence and wealth. In a world that prized descendants above everything, he gave that ability away. Imagine that his money, his position, his power, his influence, his achievements perhaps hadn't filled him like he had expected. I mean, he prepared for a life of success, but he was unprepared for how dissatisfied his soul would be. And so realize in the story, he's essentially gone to his boss, the queen of Ethiopia, and asked for an extended vacation to visit Jerusalem. And she signed off on it, right? She allows him to go, and this wouldn't be like, hey, I'm going to catch a flight to go worship in Jerusalem, I'll be back after the long weekend, I'll be back in the office, queen. No, this would be like a long, weeks, months on journey. He goes to Jerusalem, up a 3,000 mile trip, to worship. And so something is stirring in his heart. Before this encounter hearing about Jesus, he was what would be known in the Old Testament as a God-fearing Gentile. There's something about him that was drawn to worship God. But realize, when he came to Jerusalem to worship, I wonder what it would be like for him as he gets to the temple that Herod the Great constructed, eager to meet with God, and he gets there and learns that eunuchs were not allowed in the temple. It's in the law of the Old Testament that a eunuch wouldn't be allowed in the temple. Maybe in the court of Gentiles on the exterior. But I wonder if he was aware of that. If he would have bothered with the trip, if he knew that somehow there was going to be this barrier between him and God because of the choices he had made in his life. He's probably puzzled by this. And he leaves, and he's reading Isaiah on the way home, feeling the weight of all of it. He wasn't preparing for things to go this way, to feel so empty on his way back, to be powerful and capable and wealthy, and yet at the same time, confused and lost. But God wants to meet with this man and goes to great lengths to get a hold of this man's heart. God knows exactly who he is and where he is. God's been preparing for this moment. The human's not really in control of what is going on, and neither is really Philip even. But it's the Spirit who's guiding and directing these events. Right? He pumps hey, go down to the road, the desert road to the south. Hey, go run along that chariot. God has something wonderful planned. And I imagine if this man hearing about the good news of Jesus and the invitation to trust in Jesus and be a part of the family of God, I wonder if he would respond with, but I'm a eunuch. And I'm a Gentile. And so I thought God wouldn't really welcome me in. It's interesting that from this place in Isaiah where he's reading, just a few chapters later in Isaiah 56, 
I wonder if this is what Philip responds to him with. Say, hey, keep reading. Because later in Isaiah it says this, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his temple. Again, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial. And a name better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. As Philip's telling the good news of Jesus, automatically then reinforce the fact that, hey, this is for you as well. And actually, the Lord wants to give you something even better than sons and daughters and descendants or worldly legacy. God is inviting you to worship in this new temple that he's constructing, the church. He's going to give you an everlasting name as God's child. And he's going to bring you home and call you his son. You will be, or he will be your heavenly father forever. And so the third thing we learn about the mission of God is this. The mission is for all people. And this is the good news about Jesus that uh, Philip proclaimed to him. And that he's baptized. The word baptized literally means to dunk or immerse or submerge. In the New Testament, we only see people being baptized after they put their faith in Jesus. And this eunuch says, I'm ready. I'm trusting in Jesus. Philip, is there any reason you think why I shouldn't get baptized? And Philip's like, no. And James said, no. And so they stop the chair and he goes and he gets baptized. And baptism is the sign, realize it's the sign of, of full inclusion in the family of God. Now perhaps under the old covenant he was not fully included, but now in Jesus, he's in. As the first fully Gentile convert. And so maybe you're here today, and you find yourself in a similar position to this Ethiopian man, or maybe you've been searching for meaning or purpose or truth and haven't quite grasped it yet. And God knows that. And if you hear nothing else today, hear this, God knows you and He sees you. And He loves you. And He cares about you more than you will ever know. And there's a reason, I think, there's a reason why you're hearing this message today, while you're sitting in church today. Just how Philip and these, these supernatural string of events led to this man hearing the gospel. So you're here today due to a series of of events, and God wants you to know that He sees you and He loves you and He wants to invite you to join His family through placing your faith in Jesus the Savior. So there's this invitation to trust in Jesus as our substitute, as our Lord and Savior. To look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To trust in Christ and be invited home as a child of God. And maybe you're here today and you've, you've already made that decision. You are a follower of Jesus. But maybe you haven't been baptized. You notice the man's response, he believes, and right away, he's like, what's keeping me from getting baptized? I'm trusting in Jesus. Let's, let's do this thing. Here's a puddle of water. Okay, let's go do it. And he gets baptized. And so when we look to the New Testament scriptures, we see that baptism and faith go together. So sometimes we think, I am, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not ready yet. I don't have my, all my you know, I's dotted or T's crossed yet. Like, I'll get baptized once I'm like a better Christian, you know, in like a year or two. And we look to the scriptures and we see that like, when people come to faith in Jesus, the, the natural response right away is, well, let's get you baptized. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but haven't been baptized, let's get you baptized. 
Like the Ethiopian, not today, it's not right, it's not full, but that would be good. Uh, but uh, if you run into your car here, you're interested in baptism, we'd love to follow up with you. We're going to have a, our next baptism service, I believe it's in January, uh, in the new year. And so we're going to be working up to that date. We'd love to talk to you about that if you haven't yet been baptized. So we see that this mission God's called us on, this adventure, I'm going on an adventure, to be led by the Spirit, centered on Jesus, and it's for all people. We have a chance now to respond by taking communion together. Uh, communion is this response to the invitation of Jesus. He told his disciples to take these elements, the bread representing his broken body, and the cup representing his shed blood, uh, to take them in remembrance of him. And so ever since, throughout the centuries, the people of God have gathered and remembered the work of Christ his death on the cross for us, and his resurrection until he comes again. And so we invite uh, you to participate with us if you're a follower of Jesus. You know, we practice an open table here, which means you don't have to be a member, or this doesn't have to be your church home. If you're just visiting, that's okay. If you're a follower of Jesus, please join us. Uh, if you're not, um, or you're not sure, uh, feel free to remain <laughs> and reflect on what we've talked about so far this morning. Uh, so I'm going to pray that as the music plays, uh, you can come forward to one of the two tables as you're ready. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love. That you made us and you know us. And you made a way for us to be forgiven and brought back into relationship with you. Lord, our sins are many and yet your mercy is more. And so we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. That our sins and the consequences of our sins was placed upon him so that we could be forgiven and free. Thank you for welcoming us in. We remember you, Lord Jesus, your body and your blood.